to PNCC Speak, the language of executives. I'm Saskia Epstein, Senior Vice President of Client and Community Relations for PNC Bank in New England. Alongside my co-host, Carolyn Jones, Market President and Publisher of the Boston Business Journal. Thanks, Saskia. It's great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. Our guest today is Elizabeth Turnbull Henry, president of the Environmental League of Massachusetts, whom the BBJ named as one of its 2021 Power 50 movement makers, a list comprised of community leaders whose work and actions are helping to shape a more equitable Boston. Elizabeth, welcome to C-Speak. Thank you for having me, Saskia. You took over at the Environmental League of Massachusetts in 2017, right? Can you share with our listeners a bit about the mission of the organization and some of your goals? Absolutely. For those that don't know, the Environmental League of Massachusetts, we were founded in 1898 and have been on Beacon Hill for the last almost 125 years, always pushing for Massachusetts to lead the nation in environmental policy. And we've got a terrific track record. At this point, we are focused on what we think are some of the the biggest levers we can pull to address the climate crisis and and model for other states and nations, the kind of workable policy that they can implement in time to make a difference. So for Massachusetts and our mission, that means offshore wind, it means decarbonizing the transportation sector. It means cleaning up our building sector and, and doing it all with a focus on environmental justice and racial equity. We advocate for policy that meets the scale and urgency of these environmental challenges. As you know, on behalf of PNC, I recently joined ELM's Corporate Council, and I'm so excited to get more involved. How can the business community and leaders such as myself support ELM's goals and the organization's mission? We are so happy to have you and PNC with us. You join an outstanding cohort of about 30 companies who represent a cross-section of the Massachusetts economy businesses who are not only committed to sustainability in their own operations, but also to use their voice to help inform and push for more ambitious state policies that protect our environment and foster a more thriving, equitable economy. And I think PNC knows well that a strong economy and a sustainable, healthy climate are not at odds, right? But are mutually reinforcing. We're thrilled to have you. Lucky to have her for sure. Lucky to have you both uh, engaged in that work. That is for certain. So Elizabeth, the BBJ, as you of course know, named you one of its 2021 Power 50 movement makers. That list was comprised of leaders whose work and actions are helping to shape a more equitable Boston. Can you share a little bit of your thought on that topic? Carolyn, it was such an honor to be in that group of esteemed leaders. And I also appreciated the recognition through that award of ELM's work in economic inclusion and clean energy. Saskia and I have talked a lot about how climate change, both mitigating the impacts of climate change and adapting to them, is going to be one of the single largest sources of economic activity in the coming generation. It rivals the Industrial Revolution in terms of its breadth and scale. And it's also a huge driver of innovation. Those of us that have been watching Massachusetts economy over the years have seen that we are a place that creates incredible opportunity. But we're not always a place with a great track record of making sure those opportunities are equitably apportioned or reach the most vulnerable or most disenfranchised among us. 
And so as we consider the work ahead of electrifying our transportation system, building gigawatts of offshore wind off our shores, retrofitting literally millions of homes and buildings, we see a huge opportunity to create pathways for economic inclusion across race and class. And ELM has been particularly focused on the offshore wind piece. You may know that over the next 20 years, offshore wind is likely to trigger the deployment of over $100 billion of private capital across the six New England states. And we're just at the beginning of this offshore wind transformation, and we want to make sure that those opportunities are available to everyone. So we worked hard to change the procurement policies for offshore wind, and we're working right now to help change the laws to make it possible for um, everyone to participate. Great points, and it really is a huge topic. So maybe you can expand a little bit on that because I think that will help listeners as well. How is the environment an issue of equity? You know, when you look at how environmental burdens are apportioned across the Commonwealth, the state maps, the state environmental justice maps, it's pretty chilling actually to see how air quality, water quality, heat impacts, heat island impacts break down across lines of race and income. Those that can afford to escape to leafy suburbs, who can afford to move to places away from highways, do so. And those who can't um, are often left bearing the brunt of our emissions and the downsides of all the economic activity that happen here in terms of pollution. And similarly, those with means and with strong educational opportunities are often the first to receive the, the benefits of the innovation economy that we talked about. And so Many of our poorest and most vulnerable are both bearing the brunt of our current environmental degradation and are the last in line for opportunities in the clean energy and climate space. Elizabeth, you referenced the scale of innovation that is hopefully on our doorstep and leading to change in in all of these areas, especially the issue of equity. How would you describe the environmental work being done in our region over the past decade? And now, how has the landscape changed? In 2008, Massachusetts passed this landmark law, the Global Warming Solutions Act, and that set in statute a legal mandate to decarbonize the economy. At that point, it was an 80% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030, by 2050, excuse me. And so at that point, the conversation in Massachusetts became not are we going to decarbonize our economy, but how are we going to decarbonize it? And that's such a more interesting conversation, right? Unfortunately, the federal government, and this is part of why it's so hard to watch what's happening unfold at the federal level, they're still mired in this conversation of are we going to decarbonize or not? And for us, it's it's not are we, but, it, but it's how. And so that creates a lot of space for questions about innovation and about economic inclusion, about which technologies we're going to deploy, and, and also about how we're going to acknowledge the fact that climate change touches everything. It touches housing, it touches workforce development, it touches transportation, education. Climate is the nexus of so many other issues. And many of our policymakers and leaders are increasingly seeing that climate is the ultimate intersectional issue. Despite all of the chaos and heartbreak happening at the federal level right now on climate and environmental policy, there's a lot to be excited about here in Massachusetts. And climate change and the environment is something I feel like everybody knows everything about and everybody knows nothing about. It seems to be hard to penetrate sort of the minds and hearts of everyday citizens. What's something that our listeners might not know that you would emphasize as something, you know, that can help illuminate the challenges and the crisis that we face and also 
the daily actions and positive change that individuals can be responsible for and take into their own hands and take action on. You know, it's interesting that you say that, Saskia, because in some ways, I disagree with the premise of the question. I Thank God. At, <laughs> you know, I was looking at some polling a couple of weeks ago across the Commonwealth of voter attitudes about climate change and concerns about it and willingness to vote to actually change their vote on the basis of a candidate's climate platform or willingness to lead on this issue. And concerns about climate change have, over the last decade, have moved faster than almost any other issue. We are seeing double-digit gains in terms of concern and the intensity of that concern across every demographic group, particularly the youngest voters. And so it's no coincidence that the Maura Healy, who's running for governor, the very first plan that she put out was a climate plan. Same with Michelle Wu in her campaign to be mayor of Boston. She felt that among voters. She centered climate in her campaign and she won in part because climate and environmental voters were there to support her and really wanted to give her the political will to put that vision into action. So I'm optimistic about what I'm seeing from candidates and leaders on this. I think they're hearing from the ground up that this is no longer an issue that we can just take piecemeal, but that we really have to to lead on and act boldly on and to act in a way that meets the scale and urgency of the crisis that we face. I'm so grateful that you've convinced me. (laughs) Um, What are some of the individual actions for those of our listeners who might be interested in leaning into their personal responsibility beyond voting and using this as a, a lens in their political activism? What are some of the ways that individuals can take responsibility? I mean, I think there's there's always more that we could be doing as individuals, right? Being thoughtful about whether we need to take that plane flight, integrating you know, more vegetables and grains into our diet to offset meat, things like that. I will say, because this is largely a business audience, that um, the power of corporate action and corporate advocacy is really powerful, particularly at this moment in time. Many leading businesses, including PNC, have recognized that, look, we can do some things in a voluntary way, right? We can offset our emissions. We can be, we can buy more renewable energy. We can electrify our personal fleets. But we really need changes in public policy to, to help drive the economy-wide transition that we will need to have a livable planet. And so for companies like yours, for business leaders to be willing to engage, willing to learn about what's happening in the policy space, willing to raise their voice and to advocate, willing to help inform policymakers about climate and environmental policies that work for business, you'd be surprised. You know, Outside of ELM's corporate council, there are not a lot of ways for business leaders to be helping inform policymakers about how to have a climate transition that um, that works for the incredible economy that we have here in Massachusetts. So I guess I would say policy is really going to be, is really where the rubber meets the road in terms of our ability to pull our economy onto a, onto a net zero trajectory. And the smarter we can be and the more we can do to advocate and shape policies that work, the better off we'll be. Elizabeth, before we get back into some of the conversation about the critical work that you do, maybe share with us a little bit more about you, your career trajectory, you know, how you got to be doing this really important work. Tell us a little bit about what led to that. You know, I think many of us can look back in our lives to a teacher that had an outsized impact on us. For, for me, I had an extraordinary environmental 
economics teacher in college. And it helped set me on a course for pursuing a joint MBA and master's at Yale and then bringing a business and economics lens to my advocacy. After grad school, I was also really shaped by seven years at Adidas, the the shoe company, um, leading climate and energy programs for their owned operations and really seeing firsthand the opportunities and barriers to decarbonizing a global business. I wonder then if we can quickly go back a little bit to talk about the news and legislation and the the bad news and the the challenging pieces that we're hearing uh, in the news about whether it's from the federal government, whether it's the Supreme Court or and the heat wave. So what are a couple of key things you could synthesize to, to share with us that what are you optimistic about, what worries you and how perhaps can we all make an impact on some of those things? It's true, Carolyn. I'm a natural optimist, but the prospect of congressional action on climate is is receding. I think President Biden may be able to take some executive actions, but nothing in his power will enable him to come close to meeting the scale of action that we need. And that is deeply troubling to those of us who are watching emissions rise day by day and month by month and seeing the impacts of climate change around the world. Countries are looking to the U.S. to lead and they will not follow (laughs) or they will not rise to the occasion unless we do. And so the lack of action has global consequences and that is incredibly problematic. I think the flip side is that, you know, some of the listeners may have read the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report or at least seen summaries about it. The IPCC periodically puts out status reports on where we are on emissions and the impacts of climate change. And the thrust of the report, as alarming as it was, was that, look, action must be at the state and local level across the world. It is local governments that have the power to determine whether we hit these marks or not. States are laboratories for democracy and for policy innovation. And Massachusetts has the potential to be a world-class lab. And so while I sometimes lie awake, really sweating where we're headed as a globe, I'm also incredibly inspired by the potential that we have and feel the burden of, of that responsibility here in Massachusetts. We are a bellwether. We are a place people look for solutions. If we fall short, we license failure to other places. And if we rise to the occasion, we set a path that others will follow. License failure. What a incredible phrasing. Um, that's going to stay with me. Elizabeth, leaders are often defined by how they lead when faced with major obstacles or issues. Tell us a little bit about how you stay positive and focused for your team as you face adversity. You know, this may not be the answer you were thinking about, Saskia, but I've been thinking a lot and talking a lot about mental health, particularly in the last couple of years of COVID, this work of environmental advocacy breeds its own kind of grief and depression associated with being close to these issues. The facts on climate change and on its impacts on human health and well-being, ecosystem degradation, none of that is easy to live with. And I try hard to make some space for the pretty rocky emotional terrain of this work. And I guess for listeners, I would just offer that All jobs and all workplaces have an emotional terrain. All work has these dimensions. Some may not be quite as stark as as daily reckoning with climate change, but there's an emotional aspect to all the work that we do. And I think I'm a better manager and leader for having that sort of daily check-in with the emotional side of, of these challenges. 
Uh, Elizabeth, you know, this podcast that we've been doing, we've, we've had so much uh, thought from so many great leaders, and it's been described as a masterclass in leadership. So since this particular masterclass features you as our teacher, what advice do you have for our listeners, whether they are up and coming leaders or even those currently in the C-suite? What would you share with them? The most important thing I do is hiring and is helping create the conditions where we can recruit, retain, and enable extraordinary leaders to thrive. The ELM team punches well above their weight. We have an extraordinary cohort of individuals that are running this advocacy organization. And that has been, I think, a product of some really thoughtful and intentional hiring. And it's not easy to hire right now. This is a crazy job market. But um, taking the time really helping the candidates understand exactly what they're getting into, what the opportunities and the challenges will be, and setting them up for success as much as you can. That feels to me like the most important part of this work. Such great advice. Elizabeth, as you think back on your own career, what are some of the experiences that helped shape your leadership style and that influenced your success? When I was in my early 20s, I had the opportunity to lead unsupported bicycle tours for high school students. And uh, That's we, so crossed great. The, we crossed the US and we crossed Europe and we did amazing things in a day because of preparation, teamwork, good planning, and a positive spirit. And I can't tell you how many times I think back about riding from Savannah to Santa Monica or riding from Paris to Rome and bringing those lessons of team building and joie de vivre and curiosity, delegation, teamwork into my work now at ELM. Elizabeth, what is something that lies ahead, a career or a personal goal? Well, Massachusetts is not on track to hit our climate goals. We set in statute a goal to be delivering a 50% greenhouse gas reduction by 2030 and to be a net zero economy by 2050. And we're pretty far off the curve right now, Saskia. We're not going to make it unless there's pretty significant policy interventions. And so my goal personally and for ELM is to do everything in our power to get Massachusetts on that track so that we can deliver for our residents and also model for other states and nations how we get this done. Just before we kind of jump into, we have some fun rapid fire questions that we like to do. Are there key things, whether that, that you might want to share with us or, or a question that we perhaps didn't cover? And it doesn't, it could be specifically about the work you do or really about the Boston community as a whole, what we might be doing, whether it's in climate, diversity, equity, any topics that you might think would be better for us to cover. I'm not sure that people fully recognize the price of inaction on these issues. You know, there's a lot of focus on oh, you know, if we pass a carbon price, it's going to make home heating oil marginally more expensive. Or if we, you know, if we increase taxes a little bit to fund electrification infrastructure, it might have a, a marginal impact on the economy. It is really hard for the human brain to grasp the consequences of inaction and to price in inertia and the downsides thereof. Those that have read the Climate Ready Boston report will see sea level rise is forecast to be measurable in feet within the next coming decades. And it's hard to really wrap your head around what that means for a city like Boston, where so much economic activity and real estate value is, is locked within six feet of the high tide mark. But this is an existential issue for Boston. We're one of the most vulnerable cities to climate change of any in the United States because of our 
So much of the city was built on fill and so much, you know, so much activity happens right along the coast. And so many leaders in Boston have really woken up to this. And there's a tremendous group of advocates and business leaders that are helping enable Mayor Wu and to, help to push the city to be more ambitious and more aggressive here. But the cost of inaction is damning. I think the flip side is, you know, 10 years ago, leaders said, we're going to make Boston the best place in the world to start and staff and grow a firm that solves life sciences life sciences challenges. And, you know, a decade later, we're vaccinating the world with Moderna and Pfizer and world-class science is helping to improve the human race. It is not crazy to think that we can't do that again for climate tech, that with a bold vision for Massachusetts to be the best place in the world for innovators to come and solve the climate crisis. It's not crazy to think that a decade from now, we could be inoculating the world against the impacts of climate change. And you see some extraordinary startups and companies already offshore wind, battery storage, vehicle electrification, battery recycling that are breaking new ground in really inspiring ways. So my wish for Boston and Massachusetts is that we rise to our potential uh, as a global climate innovation and technology leader. And in parallel, that we model the kind of policy action that other states and jurisdictions can replicate and run with. I think what you've said is so important, and I hope that uh, this conversation and perhaps others that we have uh, after can really put a megaphone on what needs to happen. As you mentioned, the life sciences and the, the incredible developments that have been made in the vaccine space and in other space, but also how lucrative a lot of that has been that we hope that many of those leaders will take some of that largesse and, and really help invest it in our community, both nationally, which it really needs, I mean, locally in Boston, which it really needs, and then obviously nationally and globally. Um, so we hope to talk with you more about this because you say it, I think, so well in such a way that really um, motivates people to understand how it affects not only them, their children, but that there's really things that can be done. So thank you for that. I'm We're convinced. <laughs> right? And inspired. Thank you. Elizabeth, we always close this show with some rapid fire questions to help our audience get to know you personally a little bit. And it's off the top of your head. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Okay. Go for it. What are you reading or watching? Gosh, the book on my bedside right now is by the novelist Louise Erdrich. I've actually been on a streak of hers. Um, she wrote Love Medicine and Tracks and The Roundhouse and, and gosh, a couple dozen others. I think what I've really been clicking with on her is that I've been thinking a lot about the indigenous history of North America, and she just offers a remarkable window into that history. Great recommendation. Thank you. Do you have a favorite food spot in Boston? Oh my gosh, I love eating locally this time of year. I don't know if I can endorse one specific place, but um, we have such an amazing local agricultural economy here. And I guess I would just say, go out and eat seasonally. <laughs> so so diplomatic. Berries. Okay, how about favorite food then? So safer territory, favorite meal. Oh my gosh. You know, I'm after two years of being largely homebound in this pandemic and cooking for for three young kids, I think anything that isn't pasta and that I haven't made myself. <laughs> Agree with that. <laughs> Probably sushi. <laughs> okay. Other than ELM, who is a Boston leader to watch and an organization to watch? You know, there's two women who have really inspired me recently. 
They're both ELM advisory council members. And one is Nicole Obi, who recently took over the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts. She's been an outstanding partner and sister in crime here as we tackle issues of economic inclusion in, in clean energy and climate. And then Dr. Aisha Francis at the Benjamin Franklin Cummings Institute of Technology, an extraordinary leader helping to re-envision and set this institution on a path for the decade ahead, also deeply committed to economic inclusion and workforce development in, in, in clean energy. I just admire them so much and have learned a lot from them um, that's informed our policymaking. Okay, favorite spot in the city or favorite way to spend the day in Boston? I worry that all my questions seem sort of politic and self-serving and I don't mean that, but I, um, I love walking along the Charles River and I also love the story of the Charles, right? It was one of the most polluted rivers in the country and now, it's, it, now it consistently gets an A or an A minus grade and in water quality. It's one of, the, one of the cleanest. It's had a remarkable transition and story and a lot of that has been because of advocacy and policy. I also just have a lot of pride in our parks and green spaces around Boston and Massachusetts. And in ELM's early years, we were called the Massachusetts Forest and Parks Association. That was our name at our founding. And we helped establish the state park system and the legal frameworks to protect town forests. And it just makes me so happy to reap the benefits of those early conservation actions, in some cases, a full century later. With three kids, Elizabeth, I know there's a lot of laughter in your house. Uh, What else makes you laugh? Gosh, the, the kids really help with uh, boosting the ratio of laughter in my family. Um, I, I'm also a sucker for Calvin and Hobbes. I'll tell you, I, um, I was just reading an old Calvin and Hobbes treasury last night and was laughing so hard I was, I was crying. So <laughs> I think good, good writing and, um, and, uh, and great comedy also make me laugh. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights. Thank you. I'm Saskia Epstein. And I'm Carolyn Jones. And this is PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Elizabeth Turnbull Henry, president of the Environmental League of Massachusetts. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. It was really amazing. Carolyn and Saskia, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com slash Boston. Search PNC. Come back soon and join us for another PNC C-Speak.